I stumbled upon literally this particular kind of research as a as a kind of side project while working on my main uh, uh, thesis fieldwork, which was essentially on agricultural markets and agrarian change in Pakistani Punjab. Uh, while I was doing fieldwork in two towns, small towns, what are called market or mandi towns in Punjab, and uh, selected surrounding villages, studying for this for this PhD thesis. I came across uh, this phenomenon whereby several traders in the grain market, some of the most well-heeled, wealthy traders that I found in those uh, trading markets, um, had names that were kind of Arabic sounding, uh, but could not be placed in any traditional idea of mercantile castes that I, that I had known from the literature on mercantile castes. Um, I knew that this was an area, the Pakistani Punjab, where in the colonial period it was primarily trade was primarily controlled by Hindu mercantile castes such as Khatris and Arodas and Banias. Uh, and following that, it was basically two main Muslim trading groups such as the Sheikhs and the Pirachas in Punjab, which were indigenous to Punjab, and then the Khojas uh, and um, the Maimans in, in Karachi. But for Punjab, here was a completely new group of people that I was encountering um, with, you know, names like Ansari, uh, Rahmani, um, Qureshi, uh, which alluded to a kind of Arabic lineage. Um, and while I was doing fieldwork in the villages, I would come across these same names for people who were doing menial you know, service, uh, services or kind of the, the, the rural poor, non-landed poor in, in, in the village. And oftentimes they would be called by this kind of Arabic name in front of me or essentially in public by, by landowners, while in private I would be told that these are basically quote-unquote kammis, meaning service caste, workers, lower caste, uh, who have kind of, you know, uh, changed their names and that got me kind of interested because I had some idea about uh, a similar phenomenon in India parts of India where certain uh, definitely Hindu uh, lower castes had changed their names traditionally at some point in time but it was a much more common phenomenon among Muslims whereby you know um, particularly one one group for example which has been studied much more uh, the Ansaris who were primarily weavers in, in Uttar Pradesh changed their name from Julaha or Weaver uh, to Ansari kind of you know emphasizing this kind of Arabic uh, lineage this idea of being kind of hard-working um, good uh, Muslims and in fact using the term Momin instead of Muslim to actually Momin giving this kind of idea of a deeper more pious Muslim than, than pure Muslim. So moment kind of representing some kind of true Islam. And that got me interested in kind of exploring who these people were, what were the lineages of this group, and what could this tell us in general about the larger uh, ways in which caste manifests itself in a Muslim society where most analysts believe caste does not exist. Uh, so two, So I was basically interested in three main kinds of questions. One, to what extent can the concept of caste be applied to a Muslim society like Pakistan? 
Number two, what are the different organizational forms that caste takes in a Muslim society where the state refuses to recognize caste? That's a very important part of, of this particular research question. And how did these, what are the lineages of these particular forms? And finally, what factors allow the economic mobility of a lower caste group to transform into status mobility, keeping Weber's distinction between class and status firmly in mind? And to what extent can this be understood under the rubric of the concept of Ashrafization? Ashrafization is the kind of twin concept to Sanskritization. Uh, applied to Muslim societies, people like uh, Imtiaz Ahmed, uh, anthropologists and sociologists of, of Indian Muslims have used this to pretty much say that you know there is a caste hierarchy among Muslims similar to that of Hindus and there is a process similar to Sanskritization that was kind of introduced by famously by Ayman Srinivas uh, to, to highlight the emulation of lower castes uh, 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 the emulation of higher caste or upper caste practices by lower caste as a form of upward status mobility or status seeking. So the st a strategy of status seeking. And I was kind of interested in this particular questions. Um, I did, this was obviously kind of, uh, you know, coming from the, the, the fundamental ideas of this were coming from the main fieldwork that I was doing, but I did some extra fieldwork looking at the various kinds of organizational forms, interviewing people from those particular castes and coming up with the, you know, the, the main ideas that I, that I, that I came up with for this, uh, for this project. So just to give you a bit of background, there is a problem of recognizing caste, uh, not recognizing and misrecognizing caste in, in Pakistan. Um, there's two kinds of main views about caste. One is the idea that what operates in Pakistan is not caste, but clan or biradri or kinship group, which is by definition a horizontal form of association. And in in conjunction with the fact that it's a Muslim society, this is compatible with the idea of you know, fellow brethren of a, of a clan and therefore in line with the egalitarian ethos of Islam which define Pakistan's Muslim society. So therefore caste, this hierarchical Hindu idea does not exist um, in a Muslim society and you know what exists is biradri which is basically just a kind of horizontal association. But there's the exact opposite view that you get from the literature in India, what I call a kind of neo-Dumontian view, which says that essentially caste is in among Muslims is like that uh, as, as Dumont kind of thought among Hindus, meaning this kind of ritualized form of institutionalized hierarchy. Uh, and the ritualization being a very important part, ritualization through text, ritualization through ideas about pollution, about segregation uh, and, you know, giving a kind of religious uh, uh, authority backing this particular view of caste. And in this particular case, the, the, the Muslim upper caste, the Brahman equivalent is represented by um, the Sayyids the descendants, the direct descendants of the Holy Prophet Muhammad and there's a decreasing line of decreasing you know, status and respect as we move down from this idea of Sayyids as the Brahminic equivalents 
going all the way down to uh, very you know non-landed Dalit groups, which are represented by the idea of Musalli, right? And in the middle, you've got all these invade the Kshatriya kind of uh, the you know equivalents, the invaders, the kind of uh, you know the various kinds of invading Muslim. Uh, nobility such as the Mughals, the Pathans, the Baloch, uh, certain converts from Rajputs, uh, then the kind of peasant castes in the middle, the Shudras of various kinds, and then basically the untouchables. So essentially, this is a kind of neo uh, Dumontian view, and this is particularly there in the works of people like Wagner uh, and Imtiaz, Al uh, Imtiaz Ahmed, who worked on caste among UP Muslims. And this has, you know, it's full of its entire hierarchy of the idea of Ashraf, Ajlaf, and Arzil. Uh, the idea that there is a kind of three-tier hierarchy within Muslim uh, society, which kind of mirrors that of, of the Hindu caste system. Now, needless to say that they, both these views have certain problems as far as I'm concerned, because uh, what I believe, what I follow followed in this particular and I stumbled upon caste through what T and Madan calls the field view of, of caste. The idea that caste is first and foremost a social reality not a religious one. Um, and in this actually I was helped not only by later works on, on caste but actually um, a work I'd like to flag right here, uh, a work I feel uh, unjustly neglected but kind of originating from Punjab which is considered I think now uh, and Sumit Guha recently in his book kind of used it quite uh, quite extensively on castes which originates from Punjab uh, Denzel Ebbitson's The Punjab Castes. Uh, Denzel Ebbitson who was a kind of colonial uh, governor, uh, lieutenant governor uh, who carried out the census in 1882 and then published the findings of that census came up with uh, a critique of Dumont pre-Dumont. Um, he has this very interesting line where he says that there's a popular view of caste as being overwhelmingly related to religion and Hinduism in particular and he contrasts that by saying that it is essentially a social view, uh, a social fact, a social relation that is not necessarily linked to, uh, to um, uh, Hinduism. And he highlights things like which you know other sociologists, later sociologists, then highlighted as central, such as occupation, hereditary occupations, the idea of uh, endogamous marriage, some ideas of, of segregation, and a kind of status hierarchy of different clans. And famously, he says, which I find very interesting, um, that caste is. He has this section within this book that caste is a, the largely political and artificial nature of caste. The idea that caste is heavily determined by the local political uh, economic context. And he has this fascinating uh, uh, kind of um, quote that I'd like to, uh, to read out. Setting aside the priests and traders on the one hand and the artisans and menials on the other, we have left the great body of agriculturalists who constitute by far the larger po largest portion of the population. This great body of people subsists by husbandry and cattle farming, and so far their occupation is one and the same. But there are also owners and occupiers of the land, the holders of more or less compact tribal territories. They are overlords as well as villains, and hence springs the cardinal distinction between the occupation of ruling and the occupation of being ruled. Where the actual calling of everyday life is the same, social standing, which is all that caste means, 
depends very largely upon political importance, whether present or belonging to the recent past. There is the widest distinction between the dominant and the subject tribes, and a tribe which has acquired political independence in one part of the country will there enjoy a position in the rank of caste which is denied to it in tracts where it occupies a subordinate position. The idea, therefore, that it's heavily tied to local land ownership structures, uh, to local sources of wealth and power and prestige is closely related to belonging to a certain clan of, of the dominant, uh, dominant landowners. The idea, therefore, that there isn't a very neat division between tribe, caste, clan, biradbiri uh, in this particular case. So, in this particular, and so using this particular social view of caste, I argue that caste manifests itself um, in two particular ways in the literature. One is a system of relatively stable ranked social groups, differing greatly in wealth, privilege, power, and respect accorded to them by others. The idea of caste, therefore, as hierarchy. Um, this is particularly prevalent in the anthropological works by people like Frederick Barth, Edmund Leach, McKim um, Marriott to some extent, but also kind of, uh, you know, McKim Marriott has a different, uh, slightly different point of view as well. And most recently has been used in Sumit Guha's book, Beyond Caste, in which he kind of uses this same idea of caste as, as hierarchy. This is primarily applicable, I believe, to the group that I'm talking, that I'm interested in particular. This is a historically dominated group that was non-landed, using performing certain services under the so-called Jajmani system or the Punjabi variant of that system, a system of clientelist exchange whereby the dominant castes uh, give the dominated or the, or the service caste grain or various kinds of favors in exchange for the services given to them. And so this is a very clear manifestation of caste and the group that I am talking about historically constituted such a particular, such a group. And the second manifestation of caste which is as ethnic groups that set boundaries through endogamous marriage and hereditary membership viewing themselves as a distinct group within society i.e. caste as identity. And so my thesis for this particular talk or based on the, the fieldwork and the literature that I looked at was that the organizational manifestation of caste relations differs greatly between these two levels in Pakistan. That caste exists at both these levels in Pakistan. First as a relatively stable form of social hierarchy at the local or village level which is uh, you know, understood, which is heavily dependent on local relations of power and distribution of resources and the prestige accorded there as a result, as well as a form of ethnicity uh, manifested primarily through semi-formal civic associations of caste groups articulating shared identity, community reform through piety, uplift through charity, education, etc., as well as mundane tasks of social networking for multiple purposes. Right? So you've got these two manifestations. On the one hand, at the village kind of hierarchy level, where this is used primarily for you know, kind of social ordering, for, for purposes of asymmetrical relationships of patronage that are largely informal, and that are greatly tied to this socio-economic power, as semi-formal, you know, associations. On the other hand, on the other side of the continuum, 
and in the middle i think as kind of an everyday understanding of urban groups um certain kinds of lower you know urban groups that have gain upward mobility who think of themselves more and more in terms of a middle class and that's one of the things that i'm trying to kind of un, you know kind of unpack at this point in time and would love your suggestions for so you've got this kind of continuum of the caste association on the one hand kind of the semi formal organization that articulates an identity a kind of everyday you know patronage asymmetrical relationships and in the middle this kind of huge group of people belonging to those castes who are from certain kinds of you know uh, who are divided into socio economic classes and within them certain kind of upward mobile groups think of themselves increasingly as part of a larger middle class ethos and i'll kind of talk a bit about that later these these various levels of caste are not hermetically sealed off from one another so for example you could use your socio economic power at the village level to tap into the larger associations that kind of you know uh, that uh, that network people or create the larger identity and therefore create benefits out of that um conversely moving uh, even if seasonally a uh, lower caste people moving and working seasonally in urban areas um, you know gaining you know certain kinds of ideas about their rights and and who they are could affect status relations back in the village as well so it's a kind of two way process uh, going on and fundamentally what i'm arguing or what i've observed it that is that the process of mobility and status seeking is driven primarily by the latter organizational form meaning the semi formal associations and as you can see most importantly the 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 final level on which caste manifests manifests itself is missing in muslim pakistan which is as a formally recognized identity uh, recognized institutionalized by the state and that's one of the main differences uh, between pakistan and india uh, which you know gives us some ideas about the both the ways in which caste manifests itself so that it's comparable uh, to india but also in some fundamental ways that it differs from india and specifically why a lower caste politics asserting kind of you know a kind of new identity and aiming to capture state power or gaining certain kinds of benefits from the state is entirely missing in in pakistan so um i'm going to kind of give you a uh, a sense of what i felt were the 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 main kinds of differences that you could feel between the kind of what i call the village kind of uh, you know service group uh, and the the new muslim islamized rahmani equivalent of that same group so basically um the group that i'm particularly looking at is called kumhar it's a, it's basically a word uh, that is most closely associated with an occupation the occupation transforming into a caste which is the hereditary occupation of pottery um this is not a new profession there are kumhars you know all across india it's a kind of very regular a uh, very commonly found kind of a social division of labor traditionally increasingly of course occupation traditional occupation and current occupation do not match at all in most parts because there is a process uh, of 
you know, social change uh, that happened um, with agrarian, you know, agrarian uh, commercialization in Punjab, which I'll talk about in a minute. But here's to <coughs> give you a certain sense of the differences between the two. So, th this is from Ibbotson's kind of, uh, uh, where, uh, this, uh, Ibbotson's book on the Punjab caste after his, his census, where he talks about, you know, the, the Kumhar as a true village menial, somebody who is fully, you know, who's, who's fully Im embedded in these local relations of exchange, of asymmetrical exchange between tr landowner and him being a kind of, you know, non non-landed lower caste. His social standing is very low, far below that of the Lohar, the blacksmith, and not much above that of the Chama, the leather worker. With, from that, you see already, uh, and this is something I was I was working basically on a paper on, on the Hindu mercantile castes in Punjab and working in the in the British Library, and came across all these village surveys and reports, which are full of. Um, which gave a context of this decline of customary relations that are happening and why uh, Kumhars in those reports were kind of, uh, you know, quite at the forefront of the change that was happening. Almost all reports, all village surveys that I looked at said that this particular group, which was traditionally a lower caste group, is losing its traditional uh, job because of the changes in commercialization because you know uh, villages are no longer relying on traditionally made pots they're buying buying uh, you know cheaper pots or, or crockery from uh, from the cities and uh, their occupation is already changing and the key occupation that they're going into is transport and petty trade and the reason for that is that they are one of the few peoples in as the village surveys indicate in Punjab who own a means of transport uh, there are two means of transport in, in, at this point in time, the late 19th and early 20th century in Punjabi villages. One are bullock carts, which are usually owned by farmers themselves. And um, parts of Punjab, of course, there are camels, which is now quite uh, uh, strange. Uh, but this was a very dry area with a lot of desert, so there is, you know, there is precedent to that. And then in settled areas, the third most important one are donkeys. And the Kumhar is the owner of the donkey and that's how is that's also part of the reason for the lower caste status but also what is then transformed into an economic kind of asset and these are full i've used one quote but these reports are full of basically these groups using uh, increasingly becoming petty traders in 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 markets as markets are integrated through agricultural change through canal colonization done by by um, by the colonial state and through the integration of markets all across punjab and integration with export markets for wheat and, and cotton and basically at this point in time they work as sub collectors for the larger Hindu mercantile groups that dominate the main city mandis. So markets, as I've argued in my general work, are hierarchically organized, uh, or organized by place going all the way from the village to the final consumer at, with various middlemen or with various you know, uh, um, middlemen or brokers uh, at various stages. And so these particular groups are operating at the lower end of this marketing chain basically as village collectors for larger traders. 
on whom they are dependent in, uh, through ties of credit and, and, uh, and, uh, uh, and supplies. Increasingly, we, you know, they are already gaining uh, some kinds of expertise in terms of trading, some idea of, of how to, to operate in terms of with markets to, to learn how, how markets work. And actually, it's quite interesting how um, I, I heard this exact story from a kind of local Kumhars that are living in the, in the village, somebody embedded in those rela local relations of hierarchy and actually kind of, you know, very comfortable with the idea that he kind of belongs to this particular community, unlike the more ethnicized, you know, groups that use uh, their name, who, give me, who gave me this exact kind of story of this is how we became good traders. Basically, we used to be collectors for, for Zamidas, we used to take their grain to the, the Mandi because they wouldn't do so themselves. And so during that time, we got to know how markets work. Essentially, that's the, the story of, of, uh, of the, the context that provides them with the background to their upward mobility. And then there is the most important event, which is the partition. Uh, the partition creates a huge vacuum. I mean, there is enough literature on this that, you know, essentially overnight, the entire grain credit market complex completely disappears because the people who were at the, the, the backbone of that, the Hindu mercantile groups, essentially pack up and are forced to leave en masse. And there's a kind of general ethnic cleansing of, of Punjab, right? Um, and a huge vacuum is created in the agricultural marketing system, which is then filled to some extent by other agrarian groups, but to a very large extent by these lower caste groups that are moving in to this particular trade in which they have some expertise already. I can go into how this happens and I've, I've studied that in, in my field work but that's for the, for the work on markets. You know, partnerships are a very important strategy for, for upward mobility because one person does not have enough capital uh, creating, you know, kind of partnerships among different biradri people from within the clan is a very important strategy um, but that's a kind of you know background the other important thing is in migration to West Pakistan um, this is a very important part because an uprooting of oneself from one's initial existing identity also creates the ability to invent new ones uh, and it is basically these incoming migrants from you know, whatever, you know, uh, my interviews with uh, many of these, uh, uh, with many people, both in the village who were belonging to this Biradi, but also from Biradi associations, what came out was that this was the main group that brought this idea of Rahmani to the fore. Uh, this idea that they were a kind of new social group um, and that they had to change their name, right? The other very important impact is that of the Green Revolution, which increases green trade, integrates markets further, and for the first time after a long time since partition, you get the old grain agricultural trading complex reinstitutionalized with these people, these particular lower caste groups as key players in that. And it is around this time that you can sense that there is an increasing upward mobility within these groups and the first association, the first caste association representing these groups is created in 1974. And so that's where um, at this particular point in time there are about 
15 associations of this particular caste group and I worked uh, or I did my field work on the one that was the most prominent among these which was the Rahmani Welfare Association. Um, at the local level, as I said earlier, the main term used for, for caste is Qom, followed by Biradar. Um, Qom could mean all three of these things at any point in time. It could uh, refer to an ethnic group such as Bataan and Baloch, occupational categories, tribes and clans. So already in the usage of, of caste, there is a certain kind of ethnicization in the sense that it's increasingly kind of being associated with just a kind of community, a kind of bounded corporate group, not really related to occupation, not really related uh, to, um, you know, um, an idea of purity or impurity uh, sanctioned by religious authority. And so that's where caste was primarily manifesting itself as patron-client relations closely linked to existing hierarchies. Right? And this is what I said was the first manifestation, the local manifestation of caste. As opposed to that, there is a very um, you know, and, and this particular local manifestation of caste in conjunction with factional alliances in many ways prov uh, you know, provides the key foundation for local politics uh, in Punjab. And there's a huge literature on both Punjabs that tells us about the importance of factionalism linked to Biradri or Biradriism, uh, which is essentially in this case kind of com or caste, that is the foundation for most local politics, village level politics in, in Punjab. So you can look at the work by Joyce Pettigrew, more recent work by Nicholas Martin on, on Punjab, say Indian Punjab and Pakistani Punjab, arguing pretty much the same thing. <coughs> and of course, we can talk about to what extent these two terms, Biradri or Qom, are and factionalism are opposed to one another because there are also places where there is a tension between the two. As opposed to that, you basically, uh, I was looking at this, and this is basically a picture for, taken from their website of the Rahmani Welfare Association. And uh, as opposed to these groups, the Rahmani Welfare Association as a kind of civic association, in kind of emphasized it, their origins as merchants which is very fascinating. One manifestation of that was that they used, apart from the last name Rahmani, many of them used Sate as a first name. Now Sate, for those who know kind of, you know, kind of mercantile castes in, in Punjab or, or even in other parts, is usually, was usually the name used to refer to Hindu mercantile groups. You know, Sate, Sate, these were very common uh, terms uh, for, of respect given to merchant groups. And many of these groups have kind of imbibed that particular ethos of kind of upward mobile mercantile groups that are also kind of self-made. Uh, even the name Rahmani, one, one uh, kind of um, uh, official, one very important official of the association told me that Rahman, Rahmani is closely tied, it comes from the word Rahman, which is an Arabic word meaning gracious. Uh, and in this particular case means charitable. And there's a very interesting speech uh, that he gave in which he said to, to a dinner of the association in which he said that Rahmanis are the only groups because it's in our name who have never, you know, um, 
begged through anyone. You'll always see us giving, never begging to anybody. And you know, he made this hand gesture saying that we'll always be doing this and never this. And this is basically underpinned by our identity as merchants. There is of course some, some uh, allu uh, you know, allusion also to the fact that they were traditionally Kumhars. Um, in one of his speeches, this leader of the, of the Remani Association says that, you know, we are artisans, uh, but we are the original artisans. Um, and there's a kind of Islamization of the story of the artisan. And there's a kind of Hindu story of the Kumhar as the first occupation. Uh, and, the, the, and in one of his speeches, this leader kind of Islamizes that story by saying that when Adam and Eve were created by Allah, um, the first thing that they needed was food and how do you eat food you eat food through you know Bhattan essentially like through crockery and therefore ours was the first profession that God gave to the world And so we are the original kinds of groups that have you know that that have worked hard for people and have kind of you know um, created a livelihood to that there's also um, some division because unlike other social groups they have they have not clarified or have not ha still have a coherent origin story so you know for comparable groups that were seeking status most prominently uh, you know groups such as the arai which are very uh, prominent in pakistani punjab a caste of you know formerly quote unquote market gardeners uh, status seeking uh, was very closely tied to a coherent story of Arab origins whereby these people had come with Muhammad and Qasim as conquerors uh, to uh, Pakistan uh, to, to Punjab to India uh, had worked hard they were not Sayyids which meant they couldn't claim lineages directly to the Prophet but could claim lineage to the common Arab and actually said that they were the more pious Muslims precisely because they were from the original stock that the prophet directly converted uh, whereas his own family uh, as it turned out were not as as pious um, or did not turn out to be as pious so it's basically the common arab stock that that is, is the repository of piety and this is some of the framing that i feel these social groups uh, upward mobile groups from within the rahmani community were also emulating um, there was a very strong emphasis on Islamic piety. There was a very strong emphasis on, on charity. Um, there was a very strong emphasis on creating schools. There was a very strong emphasis on, on you know, creating um, hospitals, kind of this kind of public service, which initially was only for other caste uh, brethren. To, but there is some kind of debate within the association as to whether they should kind of open it up or not. Uh, but in terms of of giving, um, uh, for example, free legal aid to the poor and needy by establishing Rahmani legal forums. I kind of asked them about this. This was going to be only for fellow caste brethren. So the idea over here is to create a kind of larger identity uh, which can be, which can transcend the local uh, idea of, of hierarchy and kind of create a more coherent ethnic group. At the same time, there is, while there is, an, uh, there is an emphasis on helping out those less needy from within the caste, it is also clear that the overall values and agenda is being driven by the elites from within the Rahmani community. Uh, they are the ones that are the main driving forces behind the kind of, of ethos, the kinds of, of uh, 
uh, they're obviously the ones funding it primarily. They're the ones who are kind of driving this entire, entire process. And that kind of gets me to the final point about whether this can be categorized as Ashrafization or a form of bourgeoisification. So is there a kind of middle class conservatism that is really driving this or is this a, a kind of case of Ashrafization? And one of the things that I felt very clearly coming in from the kinds of identity and, and, and the practice and the discourse of these groups, which is not as coherent as some of the other groups, is that they provide a very strong critique of the Sada, the Sayyids. Um, the Sadat, quote unquote, or the, or the Sayyid, the upper caste, are seen as representing rural Islam as representing backward Islam that is mediated by all of these, you know, this culture of shrines and Sufis, which is basically keeping masses illiterate and backward. And the Sadat, the Sayyids are kind of, you know, profiting from that. Um, they, that's a very strong critique that comes out from much of the, the discourse around that. This does not mean that they are really aiming for an anti-Sadat kind of politics. It's just that it's important to as a backdrop in their discourse to distinguish themselves from the Sada. In saying that they are Muslim, that they are pious, that they are also of an Arab origin, they are at the same time emphasizing that these they are not the Sayyids. They are not this kind of group of, of people who revel precisely in the fact that they were born to the Prophet's family and forgot all about Islam after that. Uh, in fact, Sayyids are not only seen as exploitative of the poor and the rural kind of backward masses in their discourse, but also of loose moral character. Uh, this was a very strong theme that emerged through much of the discourse and, uh, that the, and the interviews that I, that I uh, conducted with, uh, with the members. And so therefore, the status seeking is on their own terms as a kind of separate group that should be respected because of its kind of imbibing of a kind of middle class piety, a kind of emulation of ideal Islamic behavior, uh, emphasized through charity, through various kinds of initiatives, and emulating not the westernized upper classes. So I kind of consider this more as a process of imbibing certain middle class conservative values rather than this idea of Ashrafization. And this is something that I'm still dealing with in terms of how to articulate and uh, theoretically. Um, but one of the concepts that came across that ca I came across all throughout was this idea of Safed Bush, the idea that we are, which roughly translates as white collar but is kind of more than that because it's also this idea of, of imbibing certain kinds of middle class uh, pious values. Um, more importantly, kind of you know, keeping your women in the parda uh, as it's a very important part of, of this particular idea. And this keeping your women in, under parda, under strict or strict parda adherence is not related to emulating the upper caste. It's actually a way of asserting this idea of Safed Poshi, this idea of being middle class, being pious, um, because at the same time as you know, they keep the that with female seclusion uh, has happened in these social groups, which were which did not happen uh, uh, earlier and still does not happen in many you know everyday rural hierarchical contexts. Uh, the reason for doing that uh, is because a lot of that work was considered degrading and. Now that they can afford to seclude their women, 
they believe that it's proper for them to do so but they emphasize very strongly their education so there's some process that might happen later where you know parts of this group will be connecting more and more to the westernized elites because education and higher education in Pakistan at one point in time increasingly means uh, going to schools that are English medium often kind of owned or kind of run by people with that kind of westernized middle class or upper class ethos which they criticize uh, and this is a process that Amara Maksud for example has recently in her book the new middle class in pa the new Pakistani middle class has emphasized so there might be that process happening but for this at this point in time in this kind of small town and, and local context this is the transition the bourgeoisification alongside the idea of a safed posh islamically pious conservative middle class is what i observed so thank you very much and uh, i'm looking forward to your questions